Good morning, Grace. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 15. We're back in our series, our summer series in the Psalms. We've titled it Transmissions from the Satellite Heart because these are prayers and songs that were sung in ancient Israel. Uh, People whose hearts would drift away from God, much like us. So we're back in Psalm 15 today, and I am back from vacation, and I feel good. We had a great vacation. It's You know it's a good vacation when your soul gets refreshed, but physically you're exhausted. And so you need like another week. I need another week just to get caught back up on sleep and everything. But I got to see my family and many friends On vacation, we went to my home state of Oklahoma, and that by itself is enough to qualify for a great vacation. Because as the old license plates in Oklahoma used to say, Oklahoma is okay. And we also went to the great state of Texas. Now, not many Okies think highly of Texas, but I love both places because I lived about half my life in Oklahoma and half in Texas and a few years in California. So I love Texas, even though I'm an Okie. And I believe in those oft-repeated Texan slogans like, God bless Texas and don't mess with Texas and Everything's bigger in Texas, and and everything is bigger in Texas, especially the mosquitoes. I do not miss the mosquitoes in Texas. I think mosquitoes are the state bird of Texas. But another great part of my vacation was that I got to hear southern accents. I miss southern accents. I got to hear words like y'all and fixin' to which means you are about to do something. I'm fixing to go to the store. By the way, there are no G's at the end of any word in the South that ends in I-N-G. You go fishing, you don't go fishing. And I got to do a lot of fishing, and our kids did as well. And I got to hear people say, yes, ma'am, and bless your heart, and over yonder, and supper, and that means dinner, if you didn't know. We don't have dinner in the South, we have supper. And I drank a bunch of Coke while I was on vacation. I drank a lot of Coke on vacation. Which Coke did I drink a lot of? Dr. Pepper, of course. Because Dr. Pepper is the official drink of the Lone Star State. It's the official Coke of the Lone Star State. And in case you didn't know, every carbonated beverage in the South is called Coke. You have to specify which Coke you want. We don't have soda there. We don't have pop. We don't have soda pop. We have Coke. And you have to specify which Coke you want to drink. And the Coke that I drank the most of was Dr. Pepper. But the best part of my vacation was getting to drink my mom's sweet tea and getting to eat her biscuits and gravy. Hands down, the best part of my vacation. And right by my parents' house, there's this gas station, and I noticed as we were pulling in on the sign, it said, biscuits and gravy, $1.19. So while you're filling your car up with gasoline, you can run in and get a side order of biscuits and gravy for $1.19. See, I told you Oklahoma was a great state. California's missing out here. I love biscuits and gravy, and if we get to place our order at the marriage supper of the lamb, 
You know, Revelation 19 talks about when the church, Jesus' bride, is finally joined with him for eternity. It's called the marriage supper of the lamb. If we get to place our order at the marriage supper of the lamb, I am going to order sweet tea and biscuits and gravy. That will be my order. And if we don't get to place our order at the wedding supper of the lamb, I'm going to ask Jesus to perform a miracle. I'm going to ask you, will you turn this food into biscuits and gravy? And I fully expect him to. And since Luke chapter 22 says that we're going to drink wine with Jesus on that day, then I'm going to ask him to turn my wine into sweet tea. I'm not a big fan of wine, so I'm hoping that Jesus will do a miracle on that day and turn my wine into sweet tea or even turn it into a Dr. Pepper. You think this is crazy? Hey, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, and I fully expect him to comply on that day. I don't know how you picture Jesus, but I, ex- pick, I picture him saying to me on that day, of course I'll do that for you, Benji. I love you. I redeemed you. Voila, your wine is now sweet tea. Oh, and about your fear of mayonnaise being in heaven, not to worry I cast that vile stuff into the pit of hell. The only white stuff we have in heaven is gravy, and we have lots of it, and you won't gain weight eating it every day. I love the way Jesus thinks. No mayo in heaven and lots of gravy. I just need to find a Bible verse to support all of that. Notice too, he calls it the marriage supper of the lamb, which means that Jesus is probably a redneck, a southern. He calls it supper, the marriage supper of the lamb, just like we do in the south. And if you think I'm crazy, will you just, will you just let me live in my fantasy world for a little while? Heaven to me is a river flowing with gravy and the absence of mayonnaise. And there can't be any mayonnaise in heaven because it says in Revelation 19, blessed or happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I will not be happy, I will not be blessed if mayonnaise is a condiment at this wedding. Since I've mentioned it, let's go ahead and read Revelation 19 because it has something to do with the psalm, Psalm 15, that we're going to look at today. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9 says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. See, the real question is not, will there be biscuits and gravy? Will there be sweet tea or Dr. Pepper, even mayonnaise at this wedding? The real question is this, who gets invited to this wedding? Who gets invited to the marriage supper of the lamb? That's the real question. Who does God let in? Who does God send an invitation to? The answer to that question is, is found in Psalm 15. But the answer may surprise you. In fact, the answer 
will depress you. So be warned, you're going to get depressed as you look at this psalm today, Psalm 15. But that depression will leave. And it will only leave, not by taking some medication, not by drinking a glass of wine, not even by going on a vacation. No, that depression that Psalm 15 causes when you read it, it will only end when you come to grips with what Psalm 15 says about you, that you are a sinner, a rebel, and then only as you look to Jesus alone for salvation because the standard is high. Only perfect people get invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only perfect people. See, I told you that you were going to get depressed today. But let me cheer you up just a little bit with our big idea, and then we'll look at this depressing psalm. Here's our big idea. Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people. Jesus simply can't get close enough to you. That ought to cheer you up today And that's what we'll see in this psalm today. Psalm 15 was included in the Psalter, in the collection of psalms, to first depress you so that you would despair of your own goodness. You would despair of your own righteousness so that you would think to yourself, even though you tell yourself, I'm a really, I'm a good person, so that you would despair of that and say, I'm not a good person. And then you would look to Jesus Christ, the Savior, the only one who is perfect, so that you would look to Jesus the one who really just can't get close enough to his people. Look at Psalm 15, beginning in verse one. Let me remind you by way of reminder, when you see in an English translation the word Lord in all capital letters, it's the English translators letting you know that in the Hebrew language, this is God's covenant name, Yahweh. means I am. So that's what we see in verse one. David says this. Hear the word of the Lord. O Yahweh, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David begins by asking God a question, but David wants us to eavesdrop on this conversation that he's having with God. David wants us to wrestle with this question and then be able to answer it. And David asked the most important question that could ever be asked. Who can live with you, God? Who can come into your presence? You're holy, you're set apart. Who can be with you? But you have to notice where Yahweh, where the Lord lives. David says he lives in a tent. And then David says he lives on top of a hill. So the Lord lives in a tent on top of a hill and not in a van down by the river. Some of you may recognize that. It's an old Saturday Night Live sketch with Chris Farley. I only brought it up to keep you awake and to keep you somewhat cheerful because as I already told you, this psalm is going to depress you. So what does David mean when he says that the Lord lives in a tent? Is he saying that God is an outdoorsman who likes to go camping? Not exactly. But it is true that Jesus lived in a tent in the Old Testament. It is true that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, lived in a tent in the Old Testament. Do you remember in the book of Exodus? As Israel came out of the clutches and the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt, 
Yahweh gave the nation of Israel very specific instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was just this big tent, if you will, that the Lord lived in. And his presence was there where the Ark of the Covenant was, inside, behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And the Lord lived in the middle of his people. Now, why would Yahweh instruct the Israelites to build this big tent, this tabernacle for him to live in? Well, the first thing you must notice is that the Lord did not actually live there. God is omnipresent. No earthly building, no tent, no tabernacle. Nothing could actually house the Lord. King Solomon actually said this in his prayer of dedication when he built the magnificent temple to the Lord in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 8, 27, Solomon said this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So no tent, no tabernacle, no temple could house the Lord of the universe. And yet the Lord commanded the Israelites in the book of Exodus to build this tabernacle. And he commanded King Solomon to build a temple. So the question that we need to answer right now is why? Why did God command them to build a temple? Why did he command Solomon to build a temple? The answer is because Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people. That's why God lived in a tent. And that's why God lived in the temple, because he wanted to be close to his people. Because he loves being close to his people because he loves being close with you. Because Jesus just can't stay away from sinners. And yet we struggle to believe that even as Christians, don't we? We struggle to believe that God wants to be with us. You are just like me and you struggle to believe that God wants to be with you when you've just binged on sin, don't you? But he wants to be with us. We struggle to believe the big idea of the Bible which comes directly out of Leviticus chapter 26. The Lord says this, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Can you believe that verse? Can you believe that that verse comes out of the book of Leviticus? It comes out of Leviticus chapter 26. But most of us don't even make it that far in Leviticus in our Bible reading plans until we ditch the book of Leviticus for the Psalms, right? Because it's hard to understand sometimes. So I'm trying to keep it light and make you laugh a little. Because I told you Psalm 15 is going to depress you. What's the context of Leviticus 26? It's all about how the Lord is holy. He's set apart. He's different from his sinful creation. And yet he still wants to be with his sinful people. And that's why he lived in a tent. He wanted to be among his people. Yes, God is holy and Israel was sinful but he still wanted to be with them. And that's why God gave the nation of Israel the sacrificial system so that these sinful worshipers could come into his presence so that they could bring a lamb and say, he is going to die. This animal is gonna die in my place for my sins. I deserve death. I deserve to have my throat slit open. I deserve to die, but this animal is gonna die for me so that I can come into fellowship with you. That's why God gave Israel the sacrificial system 
system so that these sinful worshipers could actually come into his presence. And please understand that welcoming sinners into his presence did not compromise God's holiness. They could enter, but they had to come through sacrifice, through substitutionary atonement, someone dying in their place. And they had to come with the right heart, and they had to come by faith, focused on and anticipating their Redeemer. They had to enter acknowledging the Lord's holiness, which is why Leviticus 10 forbid them from drinking a glass of wine and then entering his presence. Leviticus 10, verses eight through 10 says, and Yahweh spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You remember what happened right before this? Aaron's sons entered the Lord's presence with unauthorized fire. They worshiped in a way that God did not command. They came up with their own idea of here's how we will worship you, God, in a way that was contrary to what he said, and they died in God's presence. God killed them. So the sinful worshipers had to remember that they were sinful and then come into God's presence the way that he commanded What should shock us is not that God killed two of Aaron's sons. What should shock us is that God actually wants to fellowship with sinners like us. God wants to be with his people. And that's why the tabernacle was placed smack dab in the middle of Israel as they traveled around. The tents of the Israelite during the exodus and the wilderness wanderings surrounded the Lord's tent, surrounded the tabernacle, which was right in the middle of the camp. Now why? Why would the Lord want to live in the middle of the camp, surrounded by a bunch of tents that were full of sinners who lived inside, who always fought and always screamed and always yelled at each other. Why would the Lord want to live in that neighborhood? Because Yahweh wanted to be close to his people even though they were sinful. And he wants to be close to you even though you are a sinner, even though you fail repeatedly day after day, moment by moment, he still wants to be close to you. But you may have also noticed here in verse one that David said that the Lord lived on a hill, not just in a tabernacle, in a tent, and that's true too. In 2 Samuel chapter six, David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem so that it would be the center of worship. But the Israelites also worshiped the Lord at Gibeon because that's where the tabernacle was set up for a while. So for a while, you could worship the Lord at Gibeon in the tabernacle, or you could go to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and worship him there where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's why David says that the Lord dwells on a hill and in a tent. Well, we've stalled long enough. It's time to answer David's questions, and it's time to get depressed. Are you ready to be exposed this morning? Let's just read it all and get the pain out of the way, shall we? You gotta rip all the way through this psalm. You gotta approach Psalm 15 like a band-aid. You just gotta rip it off because it's painful what it says about our hearts. You ready? Here we go. Look at verse one. O Yahweh, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Isn't that depressing? The requirements for enjoying God's fellowship, for living in God's tent, the requirement is perfection. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. So that's depressing to me. Psalm 15 is depressing because I know that this psalm does not describe me and it does not describe you. If you think Psalm 15 describes you, lean over to your spouse or your children and say, does that sound like me? I guarantee you they're gonna say, "Uh, no. Psalm 15 does not describe me. Psalm 15 does not describe you. Psalm 15 describes Jesus. I hope that you really don't think that this psalm describes you or that you could actually pull this off. Psalm 15 is not written so that you read it and get full of pride. Psalm 15 is written so that you despair of your own righteousness. You despair of your own goodness and you take off running to Jesus Christ as your only hope, as the only one who could pull off the requirements listed in this psalm. And that's how God wants you to respond to Psalm 15 this morning. He wants you to despair of your so-called righteousness and then run to his son, Jesus. Jack Miller said this, God loves you where you are, not where you have been pretending to be. The last thing we want to admit is that we are weak, foolish, and sinful, but we are tense in our imagined righteousness. What we really need is just to face the truth about ourselves. When we do that, our lives have a special appeal to God and to unbelievers. God loves to hear a person cry out in heartbroken honesty, Lord, I am nothing but a poor sinner. Send help quickly or I'll die. God loves you where you are, not where you have been pretending to be. He doesn't love you because you have been faithful with your quiet times. He doesn't love you because you read your Bible every morning. He doesn't read you because you pray all the time. He doesn't love you because you serve in the church and you give financially. He doesn't love you because you pray for an unreached people group to hear the gospel every morning. He doesn't love you because you've read all of the book of Leviticus and not only understood it, but liked it. He doesn't love you because you have a radical crazy love for Jesus. He loves you where you are. He loves you because you are a sinner. And if you don't believe me that you are a sinner, then you need to reread Psalm 15 today. David answers his own questions, but his answers will rip the band-aid off of your pus-filled self-righteousness. He says, who can dwell in God's tent? Who can be around God? And verse two says that someone who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Does that describe you? Me? No. It describes Jesus. 
None of us walk blamelessly. None of us always do right. And none of us speak truth in our hearts all the time. And here's the proof. How many of you rehearsed the good news of the gospel all week long without once ever believing a lie of Satan? How many of you believed a lie from the devil this week? How many of you let Satan convince you that God doesn't love you? How many of you let Satan convince you that God's upset with you? That you let Jesus down with your behavior, that you broke his heart? How many of you believe the lie this week that you are under condemnation and that God's mad at you? How many of you? How many of us? All of us. We all thought something like this during the week. So we haven't spoken truth in our hearts, have we? But what we actually need to do is speak more truth in our hearts. So David is on to something here. We need to speak the truth of the gospel in our hearts more and more. As Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself and the things you say to you about you are formative of the way that you live. You are constantly talking to yourself about your identity, your spirituality, your functionality, your emotionality, your mentality, your personality, your relationships, etc. You are constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of your own righteousness, power, and wisdom. Or you preach to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and sufficient grace. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of aloneness and inability... Or you preach to yourself the true gospel of the presence, provisions, and power of an ever-present Christ. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Are you preaching to yourself often and repeatedly the true gospel of the presence, the provisions, and the power of an ever-present Christ? Are you preaching to yourself often that Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people? See, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And we see the negative side of this truth because we don't speak the truth in our hearts all the time, do we? We have ungodly motives. We speak ill things about people in our minds and in our hearts while playing nice to their face, don't we? We all do that. We probably did that this week. Saw someone, thought something in our heart, like, I can't stand that person. And then we went up to him and was like, how you doing? Oh, bless your heart. So good to see you. I wish you would die. We all do that, don't we? We speak evil of people in our hearts. But David mentions in verse 2 that some of us take it a step further and we slander people with our own lips. Remember, he's actually describing in this psalm who can dwell in God's tent, who can come into God's presence. But we all know that we don't measure up. So we might as well read this psalm as a description of people who don't do these things because that's the point of the psalm, to depress you, to get you to despair that you don't do these things, and then to get you to look to Jesus, the only one who did do all of these things. 
And David will go on to answer his questions by saying that to enter God's presence, you have to do no evil to your neighbor or take up a reproach against a friend, that you must despise a vile person and honor those who fear the Lord, and you must swear to your own hurt and not change your mind when you realize it's going to cost you, and you can't charge people interest, and you can't take a bribe. So in some degree, we have all failed at these requirements. So I don't want to hash out what each one means because that would depress you even further. I want to point you to Jesus. I want to remind you about Jesus. I want to remind you that even though you fail at all of these things, even though you and I don't measure up to be able to dwell in God's tent, this is still true. Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people. He can't get close enough to you. For the nation of Israel, for David, for his son Solomon, Yahweh the sovereign Lord made a way possible for them to draw close to him. In fact, Yahweh moved into their neighborhood. That's how bad, how close God wanted to be with his people. And he made a way possible through the sacrificial system. Sinners could come into God's presence by bringing an animal that would die in its place for their sins. Sinners could draw near to Yahweh because he made a way possible. And Jesus wanted to be with his people so bad that he came up with a way that would satisfy God's justice against man's sin and yet still allow sinners and rebels to get close to him. And it all revolved around sacrifice. A lamb would be shed, killed, blood would be shed to bring sinners close to God. And that's exactly who Jesus is. As John the Baptist says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In spite of how depressing this psalm is, this is still true. Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people. Now that seems like a contradiction when you read the requirements and qualifications of who can actually dwell in God's presence. That truth seems like it wouldn't be true when you read the qualifications in Psalm 15, but it is true. Psalm 15 starts with the the question, who can fellowship with Jesus? And it answers that question, but the answer exposes us and sweeps the leg out from under us. It's like in the movie, The Karate Kid. Most of you have seen that, right? When Daniel injures his leg in the final karate tournament match and he's hobbling on one leg in the crane position, you know. He's trying to stay in the match and the leader of the Cobra Kai, the bad karate team, the sensei of the Cobra Kai says to his student who's facing off with Daniel, who has the hurt leg, he yells at his student, sweep the leg. It's an unethical move. Well, that's what Psalm 15 is supposed to do. It's supposed to sweep your leg. You're not supposed to read Psalm 15 and think, I can do this. You're not supposed to read Psalm 15 and think, this sounds just like me, right, everybody? No, Psalm 15 is supposed to sweep the legs out from under your self-righteousness so that after you hit the ground and you look up, Jesus is there extending his hand to help you up. Wax on, wax off. That's good news, people. And that's how David ends this psalm. He ends by dropping a gospel promise on us. He says at the end of verse five, he who does these things shall never be moved. Now you would think that David would end by telling us that the one who keeps on doing these things will dwell in Yahweh's tent. 
You would think that David would answer his question and come back around by saying, the one who does these things shall dwell in your tent, O Lord. The one who does these things shall dwell on your holy hill. But he doesn't do that. Now why? Because David knows us. He knows that we can't do these things. He knows that we are failures. So he ends by saying that we are secure, that we shall not be moved from God's presence even though we fail all the time. Do you see it? Are the lights going off? You shall not be moved from God's presence even though you fail because Jesus will keep you. We are secure because Jesus did all of Psalm 15 for us and he credits us with his righteousness, with his life so that we can camp out in Yahweh's tent forever. And he keeps us even when we fail. We keep on failing at these requirements and Jesus keeps on keeping us. See, David knows that the Christian life is not all about what you have to do. The Christian life is all about what has already been done, what has been done by Jesus for us. So don't be depressed anymore this, Christ, this morning, Christian. Don't be depressed anymore. If you're not a Christian, you need to be depressed because this psalm has exposed you as a rebel and a sinner. And apart from Jesus, there is no hope. You need to be depressed this morning if you're not a Christian because you don't have any hope. The only thing that awaits you is an eternity apart from God's presence in hell. So if you're not a Christian this morning, stay depressed until you look to Jesus Christ by faith, until you turn from your sins and cling to him. But if you're a Christian this morning, don't be depressed anymore. We've heard the condemning nature of the law and now the good news of the gospel needs to come in. It's time to celebrate. I know you have failed this week. God knows that you have failed this week. I have failed all week long. Relax. You are not the point of Christianity. Jesus is. And he performed for you. He fully obeyed the law of God for you, lived a sinless life. He never sinned. He gives you his righteousness. He takes away your sin, your shame, your guilt, your condemnation, and goes to the cross and dies in your place. And now you're blameless in God's eyes. For real, you are blameless, Christian, in God's eyes right now. That is the gospel. So don't run away from God today. No matter what you did last night or yesterday or last week, don't look at the Lord's Supper. Don't look at this table and be scared and dread it. This table, the Lord's Supper, is for sinners and only sinners eat at this table. It's for repentant sinners who confess their sins and repent and cry out to Jesus. So please don't dread this moment. Please don't run away from God. That's what so many of us want to do when we're stuck in the muck and the mire of sin. We want to run away from God. Don't we? When we've binged on sin, we feel like God won't take us back, so we run away. We haven't been reading our Bible, haven't been praying, we've been sinning like crazy, binging on sin, finding delight in a million other things, and we think, I can't go to God. He doesn't want me right now. I gotta run from him. Kelly Capick said this, run from him? That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. 
Run to God. The glory of the gospel is that no matter how bad you've blown it, you can run into God's presence and he wants you to come into his presence. That's the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is not to you run away and think, well, maybe if I get far away and stay away, maybe if I get a couple weeks between me and that sin, then I can kind of ease my way back into his presence. The glory of the gospel is when you blow it, you run right back into his presence and say, Father, forgive me. Thank you for Jesus. Don't run from God this morning. Run to him. And the good news of the gospel is that we're so weak and so stubborn, sometimes we still don't run to, run to God. The good news of the gospel is that God is running to us even when we're running from him. This table right here is an invitation to run into God's presence. The bread and the cup are God's invitation to you to run right into his presence right now. That's what he wants. Like a child like your kids, like your grandchildren. Man, they don't know what's right or wrong. They just run to mom and dad, run to granny and papa. They don't care. You could be eating a bowl of popcorn, watching TV, and a kid comes flying off the couch because they want to be with mom. They want to be with dad. That's what you're supposed to do with God. You just run into his presence. Say, Father, here I am. That's what God wants. To quote Jack Miller again, to be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without repentance, there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father. The Lord cannot resist the broken heart that has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. This Holy Father sees humanity in all its nastiness and yet is given to strange, tender excesses. His love explodes into joyous action whenever a convicted sinner turns toward home. Will you turn toward home today? Will you believe the gospel again? Remember, Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people. And this is how you get close to Jesus today. You feed on Christ by faith. And then one day, you'll be able to eat this meal that we're about to eat. You'll be able to eat it Drink a glass of wine with Jesus, as he said in Luke's gospel, in Luke 22. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said that he will not eat this meal until we see him again. He will not drink wine until then. But the promise of the gospel is that one day we'll have a glass of wine with Jesus. We'll eat a meal with him. One day at the marriage supper of the lamb, we'll have a glass of wine with Jesus. We'll actually sit down to eat a meal with the one who gave his life for us. That is incredible. Until then, we eat this meal, remembering this wonderful gospel truth. Jesus simply can't get close enough to his people. Jesus simply can't get close enough 
to you. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we know our our sin. We've been exposed. We've loved a million other things more than you. Forgive us. Wash us. Help us to forsake sin and to hate it, to turn from it, and to turn to your son. Thank you that you love sinners. You can't stay away from repentant sinners. We thank you for the gospel. May we be strengthened. Give us grace today. Empower us by grace as we feed on your son by faith. In whose name we pray, amen.